Good evening. You are listening to the Yena podcast, the official podcast of the New Zealand Skeptics. Today is Tuesday, or is it Wednesday? No, it's Wednesday today, isn't it? It's the, it's the 16th. Am I right? Yeah. No, no, it's the 18th. Wednesday the 18th. You oh, want to try okay. that again, Craig? Okay. It's Wednesday the 18th of and, is it October. Yeah. Can we start from the top, though? We're, we're the official skeptical, or the official podcast of the NZ Skeptics. Are there unofficial NZ Skeptics podcasts out there? Are people pirating us or what's Are going on? Are we skeptical about the date? Or is <laughs> yeah, the time. The, the title doesn't make sense. The, your date's all wrong. I, I think this is all, it's going horribly. Yeah, I'm just showing my age. Uh, well, I, I, I went to look at the date, and because my Zoom is occupying my full screen on my center screen, I went to look at the date that's down in the corner of my right-hand screen, but it's kind of off uh, distance, and I just realized I could have just looked at the date on the left-hand screen, which is a lot closer to me, and... Anyway, so from this distance and with the mic stand in the way, it looked like it was 16 when it's actually the 18th. Anyway, so... I think he's just bored 90% of our audience away. (laughs) So um, we can talk about what we like this time because nobody's listening anymore. So as you've heard, joining me this evening, there is Bronwyn. Hello. And Mark. Hey, how's it going? All right. We talked about this like five minutes ago, just before we started recording. Well, no, I've got a, I've got another reason to be not all right. What What's not all right about your life at the moment? Well, I'm just disappointed about the election outcome. Oh, my God. I love how you just led into our first topic of conversation <laughs> so well. Really, you're disappointed? But surely it's going to mean more money in your pocket. You might be able to pay less taxes. Um, that is he, true. He loses but... the carbon tax or the carbon benefit, doesn't he? Because now his Tesla is just so anti-national. <laughs> I I probably will do better uh, financially, but I would rather uh, pay more tax and um, actually have lesser fortunate people do better. Oh my goodness, that sounds like such a, a nuanced, enlightened way of looking at voting. You actually vote thinking about other people less fortunate than you. That's, I think, that's quite yes. a rare thing, to be quite honest. <laughs> and also, also worried about what is going to happen about climate change now that uh, a government that is uh, less likely to do anything about it is is in power. I guess the one thing that I am happy about is that. That the timing of this is such that if if this had been the election that that National Act and New Zealand First had won three or four years ago, it would have been before COVID, and we might have had a much worse outcome with with COVID. It might have been much more like the UK or other countries where uh, things went quite badly wrong with COVID, and we were pretty fortunate here that uh, we we had the the outcome that we did. Mm. So I I wrote an article um, in the newsletter this weekend just about I I looked at the other end of the spectrum, the parties, not the ones that got the most votes, but the ones that got the least votes. And I think I was happy to see how few votes they got. I mean, Liz Gunn getting over one percent. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. Like that's one in a hundred voting people thought that Liz Gunn was better than anything else on offer and i like one in a hundred seems quite high right yeah although maybe it was just like some people just vote for a joke and 
that party certainly had the um, the sort of persona of uh, it being the joke vote. If you couldn't, yeah. One one thing actually, else. I saw one of our local Facebook groups. Um, somebody was talking about who to vote for, and they suggested NZ Loyal, and their reasoning was the 1% tax. Wouldn't you like to keep 99% of everything that you earn rather than losing 30% to your taxes? Vote for NZ Loyal and, and they will only tax you 1%. And the naivety of it, the idea that it's that simple, that you know a, their 1% transaction tax would, as if it would actually mean that you get more meaningful money in your pocket. It, it was just, you know, I don't want to get on a in the middle of an argument in Facebook because it's going to be never ending, but it just feels sad that people see things in that simplistic way. Um, mm. And that maybe some people were fooled by the idea that Liz Gunn would be giving them more money rather than trashing our economy and our reputation on the world stage, which is more likely what would have happened. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you only have to think about it for a few seconds to realize that if you're only taking 1% tax, that's an awful lot of government revenue that the government doesn't have to spend on things like health and uh, education and roads and whatever else. Yeah, I, I think the naive bit, as far as Liz Gunn was concerned, was the idea that it's every transaction and, you know, the, the end user purchase isn't the only transaction that happens, right? Companies make transactions all the time. Right. As she says in one of her videos, billions of dollars are transacted every day. And so the idea was that she would no longer be taxing the people. She'd be taxing the companies. With And like the thought that this means that our economy would work the same, that prices wouldn't go up, that companies wouldn't pass on these taxes to us. It's just... As I said, it, it's so naive to think that this wouldn't. In, I mean, I I have no idea if it's possible to model this and see what a one percent transaction tax would do, or whether any country might have attempted this. But presumably, it would make a massive shift in how our entire economy works. Yeah, I think we would have to have an economist on, but um, I can imagine that uh, modeling it would not take into account the psychology of um, companies then wanting to find ways to avoid the tax by creatively uh, moving funds in in other ways or, or start up starting up bartering operations or some other trading um, scheme <laughs> yeah so. so yeah so so Liz got about one percent um and then I I added up all the other kind of fringe either extreme Christian or conspiracy groups and altogether it was two and a half percent so even if they had all bandied together it looks like they wouldn't have reached the five percent threshold and so for that I'm happy but again two and a half percent you know the idea that one in it's that 2.5 one in 40 people would be choosing a conspiracy based party like just think about walking down the street and, and thinking that one in 40 people is an extremist mm. in some way i guess an extreme christian who wants to bring in a theocracy or or a conspiracy theorist who thinks that the illuminati are running the world uh it's quite a high number yeah well but i think it it's it's a low number too if you compare it to the surveys they did when the parliamentary occupation was was happening in wellington last year and and they were claiming that something like 30 or 40% of the country supported the protesters. So that if you translated that into votes, <laughs> at yeah, least, I, uh, yeah. 
I, I think that's a very different thing. I, I think there's a big difference between voting for a party and having some sympathy for the people that had camped out in Parliament. And I think mm. one does not necessarily translate to the other. Indeed. But yeah, yeah, I guess heartening that we are we are still a long way away from having a conspiracy party in government at all with any MPs um, sitting in the House or them running things. It, it seems like at least we're safe from that, thankfully. It, it is interesting to see that um, the the email that I set up to monitor the Voices for Freedom emails and reality check radio emails, there's nothing has come out uh, since before the election. So I'm wondering what they think about it all. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one because, I mean, they seem to like, you know, they, they've had it with politics. They've said publicly that they don't want to be in politics, that they see that there's no place for them there and they see that people should be preparing for what happens when it all goes wrong and that's where they lead into their prepper stuff of you know hmm. you should buy these water tanks and learn how to make your own torch at home and stuff like this all these weird and wonderful articles they're making about preparing for the the end of civilization in new zealand so i guess the only thing that's gonna be interesting now is is what happens with the all the special votes that are still to be counted and apparently there's about half a million of those. Um, so that is likely going to make a few changes, but almost uh, certainly not enough changes to affect the the final outcome, although the majority of the right-wing parties might be a little slimmer than they uh, currently seem to have. So it is going to be interesting to see how, um, how the mixture works with the National Land Act and uh, New Zealand First in the mix. So are we sure it's New Zealand first? I understood that, you know, if the overhang meant that we went to 122, that at that point New Zealand first are needed. Do we know for definite whether we're at 122 MPs for this term? There's a um, there's a Port Waikato by-election coming up that looks like it's going to give another MP to National, um, but to Patimari uh, did some magic with the number of uh, votes that they got which means that they actually have some some overhang they have more i think more electric mps than their party vote would allow and the way mp works is that um if you have more electric mps in your party a vote would allow in parliament then parliament just gets bigger they don't go and take yep. some yep. uh mp's away to get your proportion back to what your party vote proportion because you get to keep them because for each of those yep. electorates the electorate did vote for that person it, it's a majority thing in that in that regard yep. and i guess you know they they're supposed to be seen as different things right your local mp is supposed to look after your local needs and then the party vote is supposed to even things out so that we have a properly representative government um and i guess some electorates are a lot smaller than others and and this is how you can end up with like a smaller um number of votes than than would cover you for that and still manage to win these places they're very complex yeah it, <laughs> i guess first past the post is a simple system i mean it definitely has its flaws and mmp seems a lot better but it's definitely a lot simpler to get your head around first past the post Yes, well, I remember back when when we had that, and uh, you know, it was pretty pretty awful system, really, and pretty unfair um, in terms of. I mean, you basically had the two major parties, and uh, there was never any chance that any of the minor parties could have a go in parliament. 
So MEP has definitely given us a more diverse array of MPs in Parliament. Yeah. Which is a good thing. Even if some of them have weird fringe beliefs. <laughs> yeah, it was something threshold. When get- Brahmin and I went to see Top talking recently, they talked about reducing the threshold to 3%. And they said, you know, that people have, have said to them, why are you doing that? That means just more of the smaller parties will be able to get into parliament. And the answer from uh, Raf was, yeah, exactly. That's how MMP is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a mix of different ideas that have to work together to form a government and come to a compromise with the things that they want. And that was kind of interesting to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the 5% threshold really is too high. It's um, it's a significant burden for or a significant hurdle for a new party to achieve. Um, I think you know, they've really got to set the, pu- set the public alight with their ideas um, in order to achieve 5%. Um, and as what? we've seen, even even with a, a well-established party like New Zealand First, um, in the last election, they didn't make five, the 5% five threshold and say they were tossed out of uh, parliament. So do we need to start a sceptics party? And I'm thinking if, if we want to come in with a bang and do this, we just put a rugby player at the head of it, right? Because everybody loves rugby over here. So some well-known rugby player of which I don't know rugby players. So presumably there's a big enough name. Jonah Lomu, is he, is he still around? Can we use him? Oh no, no! Really? Is he? The, oh no! Late, very much the so. late Jonah. Oh, the late Jonah. Oh, oh, okay. All right. Give me another one then. Uh, Daniel Carter. All right. Uh, is he okay? On, let, let me just Google that. Let me just get. <laughs> let's let's make sure we're politically life. aligned here. <laughs> uh, yes, I don't think I think Sonny Bill player. Williams is not sort of uh, not someone we'd want leading our poly, our party. Oh, I thought you were checking he was alive, but you were checking that he's a rugby player. Is yeah. he alive as well? <laughs> yes, he's an alive, he's an alive retired rugby player. All right, now we need to find um, out if he's skeptical and if he well, has political ambitions. <laughs> but he's what's, got a what's nice. What's the bar here? What's the bar here for? He has to be skeptical. What are we? What are we wanting? <laughs> <laughs> Not much. I mean, as long as he does what we tell him to do, I, I don't care that much. As long as he doesn't think he's psychic, I think. Let, let's put that as the bar. How's that? Okay. I'm kind of curious um, with all these sort of minor parties, how much money they were able to fundraise or get in donations. Because I think uh, Top was saying that maybe they got like, you know, certainly less than half a million. But an organization like Destiny Church and the Vision Party and the Umbrella Party, I wonder how many how much money they had in donations or were there ever mm-hmm. any donations for them? Did they actually was that actually all funded from Brian Tomaki's pocket? Well, it is an interesting point, isn't it? That when you look at the likes of the right wing parties, they were much better funded than, than, than the left wing parties. And it sort of brings up the ideas around being able to buy votes. One would hope that the ideas mattered, but getting your name out there and advertising and uh, doing well on social media costs money and it, it's getting to the point, and it possibly always has been, that the more money you can raise for your political party, the better you are likely to do. Um, and that is unfortunate because it means that moneyed interests can um, essentially buy political power. Cool. So what you're saying is when we start the, it's either the NZ Skeptics <laughs> Party or the Yeah Nah Party, we need a lot of money to buy votes. Everyone's, well, member- everyone's membership is going up to like a couple of grand a month. <laughs> Well, no, 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 because a few years ago I had the idea that we should call it the Rational Party. Oh, okay. (laughs) 
then we could just um, piggyback off nationals. We just rational and national. With that national party. <laughs> so mumble it enough that people get confused. Yes. Or, or simply we just put a big R. On all, like a big stickered R on all their posters and billboards. Yeah, right. brilliant. We might be mistaken for Republicans then, but... Uh... <laughs> all right, that, that sounds good. Unless anybody's got any better names, if anybody listening has got a great name for our new political party that we are definitely going to create in three years, please let us know. I have said, actually, in our Skeptics in Cyberspace meeting maybe a couple of months ago, I came up with the idea that I think I might try and run as a candidate in the next election. I'm going to pick Jeez. one of the fringe conspiracy parties and I'm going to see if I can convince them that I should run for my local electorate under their name and see if they bother to look me up. And if not, I am going to run for a conspiracy party and tell everybody not to vote for me. Well, you've got three years to plan this. A lot can happen the... in three years. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, it was actually, um, I tried to find out what the election results were, the individual votes, because I was interested in seeing how many votes Jeanette Wilson got. Um, but my Googling does not seem to have been able to find out that, that answer. It, it seems that the election websites and the are giving the party votes, but I can't find the results for individual electorates and how many, how many votes they got. Uh, you guys may well be better at uh, Googling that than I was, but I got the distinct impression that actually the official results wouldn't be published until the special votes have been counted. Oh, that might be uh, the case. In which yeah. case, that's another article, just having a look at each of the really weird candidates and how well they did. Yes, well, the uh, the special votes are, aren't uh, due to be released. He got 1,211 votes. Oh, okay, there we go. Um, if you look if you look under elections re electionresults.gov gov govt dot nz um you can look for under electorate and it's her electorate under funga paroa okay. preliminary count oh, and she's okay. not even the lowest yeah. wow she's the second lowest craig layborn um got 514 he was he was democracy nz uh right that was okay. macking i kind of yes, fell on his face didn't it <laughs> And then yeah. just and, and then just above uh, Jeanette Wilson was um, the ACT Party candidate Simon Angelo. Yes, well that that would be a national seat, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, party vote lead was national. So I guess the only thing that uh, remains to be seen now is whether uh, Liz Gunn is going to follow through with her conspiracy theories about the election being rigged against her. Um, I know that she took a court case to the about the electoral commission, and the the comment from the judge was that. Essentially, they left it too late. <laughs> what did what did he say? It was a novel idea. What what they were trying. But we certainly don't want to entertain the the uh, American uh, Republicans' uh, sort of claims that the election was rigged. We don't want those sorts of ideas to come here to New Zealand. Let's keep that trash out. One of the conspiracy theories was that the voting machines were. Um, were rigged, and we fact, in fact don't have voting machines in New Zealand. They're all paper ballots that are counted by hand. Uh, if you're into the conspiracy mindset, <laughs> you don't really care about facts, do you? Uh, yeah, and such an American bent. Like a lot of the conspiracy stuff we see over here is just recycled American stuff. It's a little bit passe. Anyway, we'll um, keep monitoring the situation. 
So I am just going to talk about um, um, battery fires and nothing to do with EVs. I know. When you told me it wasn't EVs, I I breathed a sigh of relief because (laughs) I know you love your EV and I know you're very pro EV, but I swear I am going to fall asleep on one of these podcasts. (laughs) No, so um, I was I was having a, a conversation with my mother the other night, and she said that she'd watched a program, uh, watched a watched a segment on the Sunday program on TVNZ, and uh, they had a program all about battery fires and how lithium ion batteries are very very dangerous. And uh, so that was just this past Sunday. So I uh, sat down and I thought, well, I, I, well, I tried to reassure my mother on the phone that I thought that the uh, the chances of uh, her having a battery fire with her old laptop were pretty, pretty um, slim. <laughs> but anyway, I sat down and I watched the program, and uh, it, it was kind of a, a bit of a a weird combination of things. So they had. They started trotting out the statistics about how uh, many of our things in our home are powered by lithium-ion batteries and that these batteries catching fire is becoming much more common. And by much more common, apparently this year, there have been 65 lithium-ion battery fires in New Zealand up until September. So on an annualized basis, that will come out around about 85 to 90 lithium-ion batteries. So I did a little bit of an exercise today where I went around my house and I looked for all the things that I thought had a lithium-ion battery in them just to figure out how many, how how at risk I am. So I managed to, I, I, the things that I've got, which have got um, lithium-ion batteries in them, I've got some I've got a, some tablets, um, computer tablets, and I've got some old ones because I'm a bit of a hoarder. I generally don't throw things away. So when something dies, I think, oh, I might be able to use that or it gets replaced. I generally just stick it in the cupboard. I've got, I think there's four laptops in the house. I've got three phone battery charger banks. Um, I've got some battery-powered tools, and I've got we've got two e-bikes. And of course, we've got the car, uh, and we've got electric toothbrushes, and I've also got some old um, power tool batteries sitting in my cupboard that I've been meaning to take to the recycling place to get rid of. Yes, that is. And a I've lot also of got phones and headphones and uh, and smart watches. So I ca- I reckon that I've got more than thirty lithium ion batteries in my house. <laughs> it's ready to explode at any moment. And how many did you say this year so far? Was it 62? 65. 65 in the whole country. In the whole country, yes. And if there's 30 per household, let's say on average, which it might be more than that because you're just a two-person household, let's say 50 on average. And how many households are there? Like one and a half million? Two two million households in New Zealand. Million households? So that's what? 50 or 60 million of these uh, (laughs) lithium-ion batteries. Yeah, if you do the 30, it would be 60 million. Um, and yeah. 62, so 60 out or 65, 60 out of 60 million is one in a million yeah. per device. Per is that is that for the entire is that for a calendar year or was that up until now most of this year? Well, yeah, so an- annualized that's probably about 85 or 90 fires for okay. a year. So a little uh, bit so- less than one in a million chance that any given lithium ion battery is gonna set fire. Yeah. 
Yes, exactly, exactly. So this uh, this program was was pretty emotive. They had a a family on there whose house had been destroyed because of a lithium ion battery fire. They had some old power tool. They had a lithium ion battery underneath their house. And the whole house went up in flames, and and was destroyed in about six minutes. And then they also had a had a guy on uh, who was in his flat and had his uh, his e scooter being charged, and it caught fire, and he had to sort of run through the flames. and And so there were scenes of him uh, going to the hospital for rehabilitation. He had twenty five percent of his body had burns, um, so. Yeah, pretty awful. And then, of course, there was the obligatory uh, fire people on saying how bad uh, lithium-ion battery fires are, how hard they are to put out and all that. So, so yeah, so it was quite an, an emotive program. I think the purpose of the segment is they were trying to warn people about the dangers of lithium-ion batteries. And, of course, there are some, they are hazardous, um, but the risks are incredibly low. Um, and so what they suggested was that um, you shouldn't just leave batteries plugged in and charging. You should uh, monitor them while they're being charged. But this is completely impractical advice, really. I mean, who's going to just sit there and watch their phone while it charges? <laughs> watch. Yeah, I, I guess I guess the more sensible suggestion that's akin to that is like, you know, don't put it on a bed of newspapers. Don't put it somewhere that's highly flammable. Keep it somewhere that is unlikely to immediately go up in big flames if yes. the battery does go off. And then I guess there's going to be things like what, not denting, not puncturing. I mean, well, puncturing indeed. is a big one, right? So don't Yeah, yeah. So so if you if you damage one of these batteries, then that can cause a short circuit, which can then cause it to catch fire and go into thermal runaway, which is sort of a chain reaction where um things things catch a light and they and cause the rest of the battery to catch a light and it burns a very, very high temperature and um, and very, very difficult to put out, apparently. Uh, generally, those sorts of fires can just uh, keep restarting. Um, if you look at what benefits uh, lithium-ion batteries bring um, compared to the risks, uh, would we want a society where we didn't have these batteries where we had to plug everything in. Uh, there would be no tablets or laptop computers or or mobile phones, would there? Um, is this is this um, whole thing being run by the alkaline battery industry who are upset <laughs> that they've lost most of the market? <laughs> I don't know, but they did have a um, a segment at the uh, a part at the end where they interviewed a um, a researcher at Auckland University who's researching uh, solid state batteries. And so solid state batteries are much less prone to um, these thermal runaway fires uh, because they don't have the liquid electrolyte inside them. So it's much less likely to catch fire. But, I mean, these things are probably years away from being commercialized. And we still if have they can these... ever be, right? Well, With a lot they, of these yes, things, they, they offer promise. Up. Yeah. But un unless you can tick all of those boxes you need with reliability and um, the ability to mass manufacture and safety, you know, there's a bunch of boxes you need to tick. And if you can't, oh, and cost effectiveness, if you can't tick all of those boxes, you really can't go to market. Yeah. So I think uh, all in all, this this program was basically a scaremongering thing and um Nobody can really take any practical advice from it apart from just don't sort of leave things plugged in forever and 
But even that advice, I think, is pretty silly because most most of these devices that you have plugged in have active battery management systems so that um, you can't really overcharge your battery. Um, I guess one piece of advice would be uh, get rid of your old batteries. Don't leave them lying around. So I should really take that advice. <laughs> yeah. Stop hoarding electronic devices. It's weird. And when you die, your children just have to clear it all out. You're, you're making more work for them. Dump it. Indeed. Yes. Yes. Although, obviously, don't just dump it in your rubbish. They need to be properly recycled or at least properly handled um, because there have been quite a lot of landfill fires that have happened because of inappropriately dumped batteries that have then started a, a fire. Oh. I think it was one earlier this year um, in South Auckland that was caused by lithium-ion battery. I guess the fact anyway, that a, a dump generates methane probably makes it more dangerous. Adding fuel to the fire. Ha, ha. <laughs> Uh, uh, folks, um, just be careful of your batteries, but you probably don't need to change your behavior. Uh, so, Mark, I ask this yeah. question again. Have you made any money out of a scam? No, I, I'm going to keep trying, but not yet. But this this second scam that I've written about, um, my clever tap scam, it's a work from home thing. I got a text message um one saturday afternoon asking if i'd like to work from home and make thousands of dollars this one i did try to make money out of the scammers i did try again to see if i could turn the tables um and this one was kind of interesting because i can imagine it being tempting to a lot of people i can imagine the idea you know i guess more people are working from home anyway but that that whole thing about having you know i'm tied to home i can't go to an office but there's something i can do remotely where i can make good money yeah this this sounds great so i i texted back when i got this unsolicited text message just acting like a standard rube oh i'd, I'd love to do that and we carried on the conversation and very quickly I got passed off from text messages to WhatsApp and WhatsApp. I ended up talking to a woman like my last scam. I'm presuming it's a man somewhere in China, but the picture was of a Chinese woman and her presumably daughter. She was called Anna Lim. And this woman on WhatsApp basically walked me through the basic rules um, how the work works, what kind of what I was expected to do, which was testing mobile apps. And I was going to get paid several thousand dollars a month for doing this. It was interesting. The, um, the description of the job and how I was paid, which was basically you do a whole packet of work and you do this many packets and you get money, you do less than that and you get nothing. I looked it up and as far as I can tell, New Zealand law does not allow for this kind of work in New Zealand, that you do half an hour's work. It shouldn't matter whether you've finished a packet of stuff. Uh, if you've done half an hour's work, you should get paid for that half an hour. They can't have anything where they say, if you don't meet this threshold, we don't pay you at all. So I did query that a little bit, um, but obviously I wanted to be scammed, so I didn't push it too hard. Um, so having having agreed to take on the job, she promised me it was legal and everything was fine. They got me to register for a um, an app again, and 
like the previous scam, I had a virtual machine set up and I'm doing everything inside a VM. So I'm somewhat protected. And I have been asked if I can detail how I do this. So sometime soon, I will be writing an article explaining how to start up a virtual machine within Windows. And there'll be similar ways you can do it in Linux or on Mac. Um, and then how to basically, you know, create new accounts and, and do everything within that virtual machine in a way that's fairly safe. So I'll, I'm going to walk people through doing that. But this is what I had. I had my virtual machine ready to go. I pulled up the app that I was meant to log into, logged in, and then immediately had to log back out again because I had to log in as a a practice account that belonged to this woman. So the first set of jobs that I was going to do were basically going to be under her demo account or her um, whatever account that she had was for training new people. And the idea was that I was going to be making her some money while learning to do it. And then afterwards, I go back to my own account and do it. Now, the job was really simple. The job was basically 40 times in a row, I'd have to click a button and the button said, start grabbing orders. And when I click that button, it would come up with a little icon from a mobile phone app and the name of the app. And then I'd have to click the button that said, submit. And apparently that meant that I had software tested this app. Um, <laughs> Craig, Gee, you and I it, both yeah. write software, right? What do you yeah. think of this as a testing protocol? Well, it's interesting that they couldn't just automate that last step of <laughs> yeah. pressing the button. <laughs> that's a really good point. Why couldn't it just run in the background? But no, they had me doing something. And I guess for anybody that's very, very naive, maybe this feels like you're actually doing something. But software testing is an entire discipline that's complex and can be automated a lot of the time these days. But also there's a whole bunch of manual stuff that goes on. And the manual stuff is it can be very boring and it can be very thorough logging into accounts and clicking everything and running through specific scenarios of what happens if I try and take out more money than I'm allowed to. And what happens if I click this button twice in quick succession? There are lots of ways that you can test an app. This was not that. I mean, the app didn't even install. Nothing was loaded. I'm just clicking two buttons. But again, for people who are naive, people that don't know IT, maybe they would think that this is useful work that they're doing so the, the the idea was that i would do this 40 times and every time i did it once i could see the amount of money i was making for the woman that was training me go up a little bit so i was making a little bit you know a few cents or it, for her i think she was senior so it was like a dollar or more for each one and it seems to go up to a few dollars and so i did it and i was expecting to do it 40 times and voila we've made some money that's not what happened. I got to about 35 times that I pressed these two buttons and it got stuck. Suddenly, I couldn't process my last few orders because apparently I'd gone into deficit. I'd run out of money. Uh, and so I messaged her and said, something's gone wrong. And I, seriously, I was like, I, did I break it? What, what did I do? Is the app just badly coded? Because it's a fake app that's pretending to do this. And the app I looked at for the last scam wasn't the best coding. So I wondered whether maybe we're getting the same thing with here. But this was the ruse. What I'd hit was the what they were trying to get me on with the scam. And the idea was that apparently for a normal set of 40 tasks, I would make half a percent commission on all of them. But I had hit 
a combination task where some of the tasks I was doing were worth more. They were worth one and a half percent commission rather than half a percent. Now, supposedly you have an amount of credit in your account. And every time you do a test, the app spends some of your credit but you normally have enough credit to be able to complete this. And then once you get to the end, they give you money back. The problem here was that because I'd hit this combination task, I now had two parallel streams of a half a percent set of tasks and a one and a half percent set of tasks. And so it needed to take double the money out of her account. And this is all fake. We have to remember this is all just fake and it's front end pretending something's actually going on. But the, the idea they were trying to push to me was that because I now had these two parallel streams in the long term, I was going to make more money when I finished the 40 tasks. But for now, because we'd gone into the red, I couldn't click that button anymore. And so what needed to happen was that the woman who was training me, she needed to just temporarily upload a little bit of her own money into the app. That would clear it so that I could press the button again a few times. And then when we got to 40, then the money that we'd put in would come back and the profit would come rolling in as well. <laughs> so obviously, this is where the scam happens, right? At the, at the point where they can convince you to upload your own money, you've been suckered. You're not getting it back again. And when you try to get it back again, what they're likely going to do is is get you to upload more money. Oh, yes, we can free that money, but it looks like we've got a secondary blockage. We just need you to put up another $500. And so anyway, so what she had me do was she had me talk to customer services, which was another WhatsApp number. No company runs their customer care on WhatsApp. This just doesn't happen. But in the scammers world, this happens all the time. And I had to talk to them, and I had to get a TRC-20 address. I legitimately didn't know what a TRC-20 was. It turns out it's a type of crypto wallet. And so right. I got this TRC-20. I gave it to the lady who was training me. She sent me a screenshot that apparently proved that she'd uploaded the money to this random crypto wallet. And at that point, suddenly the blockage disappeared in my app. I was able to complete the 40 tasks. Once I'd completed them, she congratulated me. Well done. You've completed 40 tasks. And she gave me something like $25. And as soon as she gave me the $25, my first question was, how do I cash this out? <laughs> it's like, I've done a silly thing for you, but you know, you're pretending I've got real money. Could I actually touch this? And she said, no, I needed to do a set of tasks for myself. Now, I was paranoid. But as far as I was concerned, they were going to try and pull this on me straight away. The first set of 40 tasks they'd get me to do myself, I was going to hit the same blockage. They were going to ask me to upload some money. So I kept arguing with her, look, how, do I, how am I guaranteed not to get a blockage? How can I make sure I don't hit a combination task? And in the end, she said, trust me, it'll be fine. And I did run through a set of 40 tasks. I made something like $65. Um, so I was a little bit rich, um, and then it came to cashing it out. And, and this is where it got a little bit weird because she walked me through setting up a Binance account. So Binance is a place that you can buy and sell cryptocurrency and all the instructions I was getting, none of them seemed to be compromising anything. So I was out in the pub with a friend and on my phone in the pub while we were drinking and chatting, I created a Binance account. I sent a couple of screenshots that didn't have anything identifying. Um, and I was actually thinking maybe I'm going to get 65 US dollars from the scammers. Maybe this is their lost leader. Maybe once they've given me the money, this is how they earn enough trust 
that then when they do ask me for 500 or a thousand dollars when i'm doing x the next task that i will be more trustworthy because i've actually been paid and in the middle of this conversation she suddenly just went quiet absolutely silent stopped messaging me and I got nothing more. So I, I didn't get far enough to see whether there is a possibility. One of the two, so I talked to two customer care people and one of them, basically I tried to talk to them about the fact that they were a scammer um, and that didn't go down well. They said they would sue me for defamation, which was <laughs> cute. I mean, you're in China and that's not how defamation works, but but okay. Um, all those other people that overheard you uh, saying bad <laughs> things about this person. Well, now I've done it. Now I've said the bad things publicly because I posted oh, it all in a newsletter article. Right, but you haven't you haven't identified the person, have you? No, I I did remove the phone numbers, but the phone numbers are in my original source document, so I I do still have all that data. But yeah, you're right. There's nothing identifying there. Um, but yeah, so maybe maybe the one that I'd had a conversation with about scamming, maybe they'd messaged her slash him, whoever was trying to scam me, and said, hey, look this guy knows what's going on. Just stop having anything to do with him. We're not going to make our money back. Or maybe they just gone too far and they were never going to give me any money at all. I don't know, but I'll I'll be interested to see if there's another one. I think the loss leader um, theory is pretty unlikely. um, It does seem to be. if, if If they did that, the knowledge of that would soon get around and they would end up <laughs> paying but, yeah. out the $65 to everybody and then people would just <laughs> abandon it and it would be an easy way of making 65 bucks. <laughs> yeah, but I'm going to see if there's another one that comes up. If I get another unsolicited text and I'm able to follow through, I think I'll play it more straight and see see if we can get to that point. But yeah, it, it went totally silent and it went silent about the same time as my Chinese girlfriend um from my other scam went bad on me and started accusing me of drinking fake booze and got angry so it was kind of disappointing that two scammers both dumped me at the same time like you know my heart was broken twice well at least you didn't you didn't get to the point of being accused of drinking fake booze though not with this one one. (laughs) but we do have and i hope i'm not boring our audience but um there is another scam that i did just a few weeks ago um that was another fun one people might have seen this one actually it was the uh publisher's clearing house it might be familiar to some people but again i i walked through this scam as far as i could go without losing any money screenshotted everything and um and scraped all the the text so i'll be writing about how that one works and and some of the hilarious ways they try to get money from you and also at the very end of the next scam there was a clever thing they did i was kind of their last ditch attempt to get me i was kind of impressed with them it was smart so i'll i'll let everybody know how that goes and what not to do if you don't want to lose your facebook account i mean it's out you know publisher's clearinghouse is pretty retro um what's next mark uh, columbia music what's the columbia music scam oh uh, pretty much you know you they lure you in with like oh um like ten dollars and you get 10 cds or 10 tapes and then all of a sudden you are linked you're you are like sort of locked into paying like super high prices for cds and tapes right and they send you one automatically every month for the next year or something and most of them are crap and you don't want them yeah yeah i mean it was similar I, i'm not sure whether it sort of goes as far as being a scam but um it's dodgy it's pretty dodgy yeah and then, i'd want to were... see how i'd want to see how many uh cds or tapes or you know 
probably not running anymore. But if it did, I would want to see how many uh, CDs or tapes Mark could uh, get out for super cheap. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, back in back in the day, I think uh, there was similar sort of thing with book clubs, where you essentially yep. you would sign up and you would get all these books for a very, very, very low price, and then they would send you a book of the month every month, and that would cost you. Probably less than it would cost you to go to the bookshop to buy it, but you didn't get any choice of what the book was. But and you could send so, it back, right? You, you at your own cost, you could send it back, and yeah. then you wouldn't be charged for that month. Yes. But yeah, I think yeah. I mean, we had those in presumably in every country. It was the same in UK. My assumption is that those basically all work on the idea that people are too lazy to cancel yeah. these things after the year, and they just let them keep going, and they let the money keep coming out of their bank account. <laughs> Well, I got scammed. Well, maybe not scammed, but uh, while we were away in the States, I one of my Uber trips, I must have clicked on a box that says, oh, I'll sign up for Uber, some scheme that gives you discounts on rides, but then it costs you $10 a month. So oh, you got the 10, subscription. Yeah, there was a $10 um, free month, first free month as a trial, and then for the following four months since we've come back <laughs> – this US $10 has been coming on my credit card every month. And I finally realized this week what it was and uh, have now canceled it. But yeah, they got $40 US out of me and for not actually taking any Uber trips. So Yeah, any of those uh, services where it's like, th this will cost you nothing for the first month, but just put your credit card details in. You yeah. know you're likely to forget that it's going on and it'll be a while before you remember. This yeah. is how gyms work. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> I presume gyms just guilt you into not stopping payment because you know you should be going to the gym. <laughs> yeah. You you're always starting a new exercise routine. You have a new <laughs> body resolution every new year. <laughs> anyway, so uh Bronwyn, you were telling me that I could have got an education for free. Well, I mean, it depends on uh what your ethics and morals are, but yeah, it seems that it's you can easily convince certainly the UK you know, with any sort of documentation that you were a doctor or at least you graduated from med school from the University of Auckland. <laughs> mm. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's the second story I'll be telling. Um, what I'm going to talk about, sort of inspired by the work I did on the New Zealand skeptical calendar, which in and of itself is sort of creeping towards completion. And as I was pulling out notable events for the past issue of the newsletter, I was reminded of like these particular cases. And I thought, okay, I might as well talk about them for the podcast. So I'll start with the most recent one because our listeners are more likely to be familiar with it, particularly if they are in Auckland. This is the case of Yuvaraj Krishnan. Um, he was sentenced, recently sentenced to three years and seven months in jail in April. He um, Basically what he had done was pose as a respiratory fellow at Middlemore Hospital and was in that role for about six months. You know, during the pandemic, and he saw about 81 patients, he conducted chest exams, and prescribed medications. When a former student from a previous uh, fraudulent attempt recognized his name and raised the alarm. Hmm. So Krishnan had all like a fake CV. He had reference letters and he had forged a practicing, a couple of practicing certificates and a couple of AP, um, annual practicing certificates in order to land the position at Middlemore. Now, this wasn't... Krishnan's first attempt at fraud, and the summation I'm just about to give comes from a Herald article because they just did a pretty good job. Krishnan actually was a you know a legitimate first year biomedical student at the University of Auckland, but he hadn't been selected for their medical program. 
However, he did get on the news um, around 2012 because he had pretended to be a med student for two years, completing both the second and third year of the program. And I say completed quite loosely because he was able to evade detection because he never did any tests. He never sat for any tests, never put his name on any assignments, but he had access to cadavers, which seems to be the thing that caused the uproar when he was caught. Everyone makes a stupid mistake, and his stupid mistake, quote unquote, was putting his name on assignment, and somebody said, hey, look, this name doesn't match a class list, and they found out what he had done. So, you know, that made the news a little bit, and then it faded away. He went to Australia, actually did complete a Bachelor of Science in Anatomy and Histology, came back to New Zealand, worked as an immigration officer for the um, Ministry of Business, Innovation, and Employment between 2015 and 2016. Then at some point, he went off to Poland, attended a four-year med program you know, at a legitimate university that does have a legitimate med school, but he left in his third year, so he did not complete the degree. Then in 2021, he pled guilty for careless driving and failing to stop during a moderate hit and run. He lost his appeal in the district court, but then he went to the high court to appeal this discharge and produced all these sort of fake letters of support from the New Zealand Medical Council and from Auckland District Health Board and saying, hey, look, I'm a doctor. And he was discharged without conviction. Oh, so he really just pushed it a bit too far. Uh, but this wasn't where he got caught. Oh. <laughs> I mean, as I said, he got caught because, you know, he got this job. Um, so, yeah, he, he was interviewed by Middlemore in 2021, and he was hired in February 2022 on the condition that he provides this um, annual practicing certificate. And he did. He provided two copies. One was <laughs> one One was a copy that was described in the court documents as being terrible and obviously not real and then the second was you know one from his for like from a colleague that he had altered and at the same time that he was applying for the job at middlemore he was also applying for the um, a medical institute that was located in wellington hospital but the wellington hospital staffer who was looking at his application said you know these this looks weird this looks fake and they declined his application you know it'd be interesting was- to know what the occurrence rate is of people putting in fake applications for these sorts of jobs. And I mean, how he got oh. so he got so far because he worked there for six months. Yeah. And well, so he's he was learning on the job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and to his credit, like, I mean, even though he didn't finish his med school degree, he did a bit. So, you know, you're probably able to, you know, push the boundaries of your undergrad med, med school knowledge to a point yeah. and everyone would just sort of you know maybe brush it off as oh he's just learning or he's just yeah. adjusting to this new workplace are you really a midwife i am really a midwife <laughs> i pay way too much why would i be a midwife for the why would i pay if i wasn't a midwife it, it ain't worth it all right i just wanted to check Scandal, scandalous comment <laughs> so going on with his story um so he gets stood down in August 2021 and then immediately tries to get a job as a dermatologist with um, what they call N- New Zealand Skin Health or NZ Skin Health. You know, apparently, as the news broke, they were looking through they were going through his references because he interviewed really, really well. And he said, oh, I am, um, you know, I did. I What did he say? Oh, he went to he did some study on skin cancer or went to a skin cancer institute in the U.S. Um, but then when they saw the news, they're like, oh, yeah, we'll just decline this application. <laughs> And he sent the same CV to Wellington Hospital as he did to Middlemore. So what Middlemore didn't catch up on and Wellington did is very interesting. But what's come out in the court is or in the court proceedings is that, you know, it seems to be either a lot of family pressure or, you know, he was certainly quite jealous. He had a couple of brothers who went to really prestigious universities and he seems to have struggled with, you know, their prestige and then be able to leave home. They went to Harvard. They went to Princeton. 
and here he is struggling in New Zealand. As the judge also says, you have a bit of a Walter Mitty kind of perspective on life. But as I said, he's not the only person who has dragged the University of Auckland Medical School into scandal. And this is a story that's been quite big in the UK and only has gotten a little bit of traction in New Zealand. And this is the case of Zolia Almeni. She was born in Iran in 1962. She did study at the University of Auckland. She did receive a bachelor's in human biology in 1992. And she was a student at the med school, but she never graduated. Um, She seems to have really struggled. So she passed her first year exams after two attempts and then was dismissed after failing her second year exams. In 1995, she relocated to the UK and registered with the General Medical Council as a doctor using a forged degree and letter of verification from the University of Auckland. Now, I wouldn't be telling the story if anyone had actually checked or did the references. So suffice to say, she was granted provisional registration. She worked for a couple of years in hospitals in Ireland and then received full registration in 1997. She would then spend, Alemi would then spend the next 20 years working across the uh, National Health Service in across the UK, including Scotland. She became a member of the Royal College of Psychiatrists in t- 2003, again, requiring multiple attempts to pass these tests because it, t- in order to become a member of the college, there's a two-part exam. So she required, what was it, four goes at the part one and three goes at part two. She was recommended into a special specialist register for psychiatry specializing in learning disabilities. So that would have opened her up to have access to consulting positions. In 2017, you know, she actually ended up having accumulated about 23 complaints of various things, complaining about her behavior, about how she prescribed things, about how she revealed information. I think she even um, got into a bit of a, like, hit a cop. That was one of the complaints. So she received a 12-month suspension from the register then. She received another 12-month suspension in 2018. It all does come tumbling down in 2018, uh, when it was when it was revealed that Alemi had forged the will of a wealthy widow in Cumbria, giving her Alemi and Alemi's grandchildren like millions of dollars. Um, she was sentenced to five years in prison for that charge. And even then, no one had checked her credentials. So it takes a local, a plunky local journalist who thought, hey, maybe I'll contact the University of Auckland. And only then in 2018 is it revealed that Alemi never graduated from the University of Auckland Medical School. And it appears how Alemi avoided detection herself was back until 2003, there was a pathway for doctors who had studied from in Commonwealth countries to bypass um, some of the requirements they had for foreign doctors, like in terms of English and education. So Alemi could just go get this waiver and then work. So this has led to Alemi being charged with a whole new raft of offenses. And she was found guilty on 13 counts of fraud three counts of obtaining pecuniary advantage by deception and two counts of forgery and two further counts of using a false instrument in February 15th. And then on February 23rd of 2003, she was sentenced to seven years in prison. And to really put this all in perspective of the significance of this forgery and this fraudulent behavior is that during her time, she has sat on, allegedly sat on boards like the Mental Health Tribunal, so, you know, as a someone who doesn't actually have a psychiatry background, having make, you know, commenting on people's cases, about 24 of her patients um, were detained or sectioned, particularly in the 18 months that she worked in one particular um, for one particular health board. And it's been there's some evidence that she's also um, prescribed and maybe potentially administered like electroshock therapy. 
So people are getting harmed by these fake doctors. Wow. Now, the final case is a little bit twistier and does have a bit of salacious nature to it. And I'll get to this. You'll find the salacious nature in a bit. Uh, Well, I'll just go. I'll just say it right now in terms of a maybe a trigger warning for some people. Um, It became quite salacious because it was revealed that the doctor in question was transgender. Um, But of course, when you look at back at the articles from the time, because this is the late 90s, early 2000s, um, they are variously called a transvestite and a transsexual. How it was presented and revealed to the public isn't, you know, not really relevant to the fraud itself in many ways. When we consider, you know, the prejudice and yeah, societal discrimination. So this is a case of Linda Astor. So I became familiar with Linda Linda Astor in the aftermath of Krishnan's behavior because Radio New Zealand interviewed a woman named Robin Bayer, or Bayer. Um, Bayer was the general manager of health and addictions in Nelson back when they were called CHEs. Um, and that was back in the 90s. Bayer was like lamenting, you know, about the Astor case. Astor began work, began work in Nelson around January 6, 1997. Um, they were hired as a clinical head of psychiatry and they had arrived with glowing references from the hut, despite only working at the hut between March to December 1996. However, the Nelson District um, Health Authority had been left in the dark about Astor being subject to a lot of, to an investigation regarding their communication and documentation of cases while they worked with the HUD. Um, as far as evidence can tell us, Astor, she was born and she was Polish. She did go to med school in Poland, did do a PhD in or neuropsychopharmacology. Um, and that comes from a letter that came from the consulate. Um, but whether they were a psychiatrist or whether it, it's it's been kind of agreed that their qualifications about psychiatry were massively, if not false, and certainly massively conflated. Mm. Um, Astor's big claim is that they'd spent 15 years as a head of a psychiatric services in the U.S. and supervising about 80 psychiatrists in Maryland and Florida. Astor was the subject of a lot of attention, both positive and negative. They were called or recalled as being attractive, confident, well-dressed, um, driving a Jaguar. Um, but also many people said, you know, it seemed that chaos surrounded them wherever they go and they walk through everything like they're in the eye of the storm. Astor was not, Linda, Astor was not long in their new role in Nelson when alarm bells started ringing for um, Robin Byer. And Robin started, you know, probably even like just two or three days after Astor started, buyers going, trying to like call up references and trying to figure out what's true and what's not. Um, so when the references weren't panning out or checking out, buyer tries to get the attention of her senior, or like her superiors. And the superiors were just like, yeah, you're probably jealous of her. You're probably jealous of Linda. (laughs) So Bayer did her best to try to keep, you know, distract Linda and say, okay, go do something strategic. Oh, you, someone, you're, 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 you're smart. Should we do strategic stuff? Trying to keep Linda away from clients and from the clinical side as much as possible. Another staffer within that, within the Nelson region was a consultant psychiatrist named uh, Al Feynman, who was American. So he's like, okay, I'm going to use my connections to figure out if any of this is real. He couldn't get anything to pan out. So he brings his findings and seems that, okay, because he's a consultant psychiatrist, okay, the district superiors are listening to him. So they do briefly um, suspend Linda from work. Um, But Linda somehow convinces them that, you know, oh, somehow, yeah, convinces the top brass that, you know, her CV was correct 
and yeah, you know, she she wasn't registered in the U.S., but she was working under a in in a private practice under the supervision of a registered psychiatrist, um, even though she had never really officially registered in the U.S. So the suspension was was lifted after only a matter of days, and anyone who complained was said, "Okay, you need to welcome her back." Anybody who doubted Linda was chastised, apparently or supposedly. So Astor's particular particular silly mistake was that she had left a loan application by the office photocopier. That got into somebody's hands, and they saw the name of Linda's husband. Now, Linda had told everybody that her husband was an international lawyer working in the Pacific. Instead, he was actually a used car salesman. And the same- Not that we should be disparaging to used car salesmen. Yeah, we should. Well, a used car salesman, but (laughs) he was not an international lawyer. This is the key thing. He's not like an international lawyer who owns a car lot. He is not an international lawyer. He is a car salesman, but- his name was also one of Linda's references. <laughs> right. So that kicks off sort of, uh, you know, another set of investigation. She's placed on suspension again, but somehow she's able to make her escape courtesy of her employer because she's able to get them to pay for a trip to France so she can go to a psychiatry conference. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh... And then she bolts. But while she's, oh, I think I think what happened is that while she's at this conference, it's revealed that a former client of hers that same month murdered his girlfriend in Nine Eye. In the hut, there was he was he was schizophrenic, and he was under like a court ordered treatment program. Astor just sort of dis- discharged him from this program, no follow up, and didn't even meet him. Oops. Wow. And then a year later, mm. the murder happens. There's some other wow. scandals that are associated with that case. That's its own whole story. Um, but yeah, that all sort of revealed around the same time. And Linda never comes back to New Zealand. You know, so several things come out in the investigation when they're trying to figure out what happened. Um, some of them embarrassing. Some of them are just interesting. Um, so it, it was found that actually Lynn Astor's employment in Nelson was legal. Astor was only improved, approved to work in the hut by immigration. So, you know, if you sort of know things about immigration, you if you have like sort of an employer visa, you can only work in the country for this one employer. If you want to go leave your employer and work somewhere else, you have to sort of go through a, a very intense visa process in order to get the approval to have a to move from an employer visa to maybe a more open visa. Um, she had an un, somehow had an undisclosed criminal conviction, um, had also administered shock treatments and um, gave large doses of medication that were sort of at, if not the tippy top end of the acceptable scale, may have even exceeded it um, in terms of what was acceptable, acceptable practice. The Polish Ministry of Health Ministry could not confirm any of the academic positions that Linda Astor claimed to have had. And apparently there were some rumors that they left when her and her husband sort of fled. They left their apartment in disarray. There was lots of drug paraphernalia in the house. They abandoned their dog. All sorts of things that sort of trailed after the case. It kind The trail goes cold for a little bit. In December 10th, 2001, Astor is arrested by immigration officials in the U.S. for shoplifting. At the time, Astor was still on, um, I guess, Interpol books, wanted for interview for their role in supplying false information and documentation to the New Zealand Medical Council. 
However, Astor was never extradited to New Zealand, but deported to Poland. And there seems to be a rather sketchy history of then Astor continuing to work in false representing their medical credentials across Poland. So they they do they are they are a doctor. They do have a medical degree from a medical institution. But it took a long time for even the Polish government to revoke their license. But then Astor was able to repeal the re- revocation of the license and just took in a suspension. But still, it's the qualification of a psychiatrist. So they looks like they played so many different roles. So what happened? In 2004, um, New Zealand television crews found Astor employed as a senior psychiatrist. And then in 2015, Astor was tracked down at a radiology clinic where they were allegedly posing as a specialist gastroenterologist. And then they later ran an outpatient clinic where they gained a really bad reputation for um, a significant diagnosis where people died. Then they went on the run until 2017, where they were caught by a pharmacist misusing prescription documents that they had from their ex-employer. And then they were able to escape persecution again and just disappear. And I think when they were caught in the U.S. back in 2001, they had somehow got a job working for two separate health authorities um, in two different states, working at either an adolescent welfare agency and a substance abuse hospital. So back in 2001. So just still constantly still working in the healthcare industry. But always able to avoid justice it makes you wonder when you go and see your doctor <laughs> mm-hmm. whether in fact their qualifications are legit given well, how many years it sounds like it takes for you know anything to happen with these like these are the ones that are caught who hasn't been caught yet yeah and yeah. and there's there's a small one in 2015 um in hamilton now the doctor you know the guy who got caught he was a doctor, but again, he was sort of done in because they said, "Hey, you're over conflating or misrepresenting your your psychiatry." You're, you know, your psych because again, it was psychiatry. It's always psychiatry. Um, psychiatry. They have the best drugs. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, apparently using the um, misrep- misusing it. Well, he stole an identity of a colleague in order to work in New Zealand. Wow, so scary of- stuff. Yeah. So yeah, your daughter, your daughter did not have to pay for med school. She could have just um, pretended she went and avoided. Just lied about years. the whole thing. Right. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Or, you know, she, no, she could have attended classes and then made yeah, up her well, own degree they... with like Photoshop. <laughs> and that was the thing. That's the thing that's really interesting about Zolia Lemmy's. I mean, you know, you're thinking about this is the 90s. Don't really have the internet or um, the same sort of access no. to details and what, what do certificates look like? What do transcripts look like? You know, who wants Especially to international like, ones. Yeah. 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 If it looks semi-official, it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. You would hope that it was better these days with um, the internet and being able to contact people more easily, but it's all down to trust, isn't it? I mean, mm. wow. Scary. Yeah. I guess the other point is that the fact that these people were able to exist in these roles for so long without somebody saying, oh, you're a complete fraud, that that they actually... But I don't. Th- I, but the thing is, but you know, it, I mean, as, with the sides from Krishnan, who you know, he's a med student and sort of av- able to sort of avoid putting his name on anything. Both, I mean, it seems that both Aster and, well, not Alemi, but Aster, you know, was kind of point picked up as being a bit weird early on, and they tried to act on that. And even Krishnan, you know, he didn't get some jobs. Some people picked up that his his references or his CV didn't check out how a lemmy got through well then well that's a bit scary 
I don't know if Alemi's case would ever repeat, but it'd be interesting to see if it would ever repeat. But it's mm. just maybe about being, listen, if people are saying, hey, this doesn't check out, maybe taking that sort of instinct a little bit more seriously. So are we telling our listeners that they should be skeptical of their medical professionals? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you know, there are public registers that you can check. They are public. So, you know, you can yeah, find if but... someone should be able, if someone is has an annually, annual practicing certificate for nursing, midwifery and for doctors. Yeah, but if, if somebody was able to get on that register by some fake um, qualification from overseas, then yeah, that's yeah, true. somebody hasn't done their job properly. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wow. Scary stuff. Yeah. Right. Uh, so what have we got coming up on the skeptical calendar? I do know that there's a conference coming up. Yes, yes, there is a conference coming up. Do you want to talk about the conference? Well, I pull up the meetup page so I can talk about Dunedin. <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah, so the uh, conference tickets are selling. Um, we've got the early bird prices until uh, just after Labor Weekend. So if you've been putting off buying your tickets, now's the time to get them. I think it's, I think it's going to be good. The uh, ticket sales are starting to pick up. So uh, so that's that's good to see. Um, and is the website updated with all the speakers? Because I think there was some, we're still trying to confirm a couple of people. Is that confirmed um, all, all the people that are on the website are definitely coming, mm-hmm. but we may just have a few little last-minute tweaks. We're th- thinking about um, maybe adding in a couple of extra speakers, but that uh, that that is yet to be announced and confirmed. Mm-hmm. So where can they buy these magical tickets? Well, they're not magical, <laughs> except in a metaphorical sense, of course. Uh, you can go to conference.skeptics.nz and that will give you all the information, including um, being able to buy tickets and accommodation for those who aren't doing the Airbnb thing. And join us for the gala. Yes. Yes. We're having a, a, a fun gala dinner on the Saturday night. Mark and, and Bromman, you're, you're uh, transporting one of our special guests uh, down from Wellington to Dunedin. And a big road trip, aren't you? Yeah, I still need to change my ferry booking to um to get another ticket actually for our oh, our American guest who's that. coming with us. Yes, yeah, but that's that's going to be fun, and unless she's got weird habits, in which case it's just going to be excruciating <laughs> nine hours in the car. I guess I guess we'll see. <laughs> yes. Okay. So you're talking about Susan Gerwig here. I'm sure she would uh, not <laughs> like to be uh, thought of as having weird habits, but. You just don't know with people. People can look perfectly reasonable, and then you sit in a car with them for ten hours, and you you just want to murder them. But I'm sure she's lovely. I know I've spent hours with her, and she's she was fine then. Fine, fine. We'll, we'll damn we'll by faint, faint praise, Mark. What faint praise? <laughs> no, she's really nice. She is um, probably one of the most active, energetic skeptics I've ever met. I think. Indeed. She is full of beans. <laughs> I wonder if she'd understand that expression. Yeah, I I don't know. Is that is that quite British? Presumably, that means that Kiwis use it I as think well. It is. I think it is. Yeah, she'd probably wonder what it was. But anyway, I suppose being full of beans in a small her. car with three other people probably isn't a good thing. <laughs> no. Okay, so did, what's happening in Dunedin? Okay, well, their next meeting is November 9th, a Thursday at 6 p.m., and they're meeting at Umbrellos Kitchen and Bar. And then, yeah, next meeting in Dunedin will be the conference, which we already talked about. 
Now, oh, for- we didn't even say the dates. It's the 24th to the 26th of November. <laughs> Not that far away now. Look, if you want to win $10,000 for the Skeptical Challenge, uh, the Psychic Challenge, try to figure out those dates. Anyways, well, it's 100000 Oh, yeah, it is 100000 isn't it? Yeah. 10000 was 80s money. We will be having an Auckland Skeptics in the pub probably, I've yet to confirm this, but probably on the Thursday, the 9th of November. And so, uh, we will be having special guest uh, Melanie Teresa King coming along to join us at Skeptic in the Pub. When when Craig says probably just check the meetup group on meetup.com, Auckland Skeptics in the Pub, and he will post something there. He won't leave you using your psychic powers. <laughs> well, I'll get my minion uh, Robin onto it. Sorry, <laughs> Robin, you're not my minion. <laughs> you called him a minion. Well, he probably is a minion, but it's still not nice to say it out loud. <laughs> I can edit that bit out. Just <laughs> watch out. Like. He may he may secretly post more photos of you on the uh, NZ Scientology page. <laughs> okay. What's happening in Wellington then? All right. Well, this Friday, October 20th at 6 p.m., it's our traditional Skeptics in the Pub Wellington at the Intercon- Intercontinental Hotel. Be inside there and you will find us. And then, Mark, you want to talk about uh, next Thursday? Yeah, next Thursday at the Fork and Brewer in Wellington from 6.30-ish. Um, although I think Dan and I will be there from six o'clock. We have skeptical activism or science-based healthcare activism in the pub or whatever we've labeled it. Um, so come along, make a complaint. Do they still yeah, get a free beer intriguing. if they make a complaint for the first time? Or They still get a free beer. I just don't want to mention it every time, like the idea of not going to the tea place next door to the Intercontinental, because I'll just bore people. <laughs> I think Maybe you can say, your say it a gift. few more times. You can say it a few more times before you caught up with uh, Bronwyn. <laughs> Did you hear that? Bronwyn threatened not to give me a birthday gift, apparently, because I was snarky. Yeah. Jeez, Bronwyn. Tell you what, you don't give me a birthday gift, and I'm not going to give you this lovely Gnostic mass program from the um, from the OTO, which I still owe you. Right. You see these tears? <laughs> no, you don't. You want it. You definitely want that. It's a great bit of memorabilia. Nice mm. little memento. Well, from the way you held it up then, it looks like it's very cheaply produced. It is, and it's a bit muddy and everything. But they're a small organization, much like the skeptics. They need they need people's money. Speaking of which, go to skeptics.nz slash join if you're not a member. Pay your yearly dues, you tight people. <laughs> Free there we go. <laughs> Wow. Great, great. Um, watch those uh, conference uh, numbers drop. Who wants to come to conference and be abused? You mean it's not okay to guilt people into joining our society? Damn. All what, right. Before we dig ourselves a bigger hole? Yes. I think it's time to end this thing. <laughs> it's getting raucous. Yeah. You have been listening to the Year Now podcast. If you'd like to give us some feedback, you can email us to newsletter at skeptics.nz or podcast at skeptics.nz or anything at skeptics.nz something like that anyway that'll get to us we'll see you all next time bye bye see you later 